Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Jeff Rubin is with us today. He's an expert on trade and energy, an economist and strategist with long experience in international organizations. He's also a renowned author of many things, including The End of Growth and The Carbon Bubble. His latest book is our topic today. It's called The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. Welcome, Mr. Rubin. Hi, pleasure to be here. All right. Well, you know, on the podcast, we just jump right into the book. So you begin with the pandemic and its immediate impact. Stocks down, businesses collapsing, people dying. But this isn't 2020. This is uh, 1957. What's going on here? That's right. Uh, It was... uh... I think it was the year that Elvis Presley first uh, made his appearance on uh, the Ed Sullivan show, but uh, it was 19 and it was, you're right. It was the late 1950s and it was the arrival of the Asian flu, um, which uh, has a lot of parallels, of course, with, with the current situation. Um, I guess I should put that into, to point out that, you know, this isn't the first and, this won't be the last time that we'll be dealing with pandemics. As it turns out, I think the pandemic uh, has more than a silver lining, uh, has been uh, perhaps a savior to to the expendables. Um, by the expendables, I mean all those middle class North Americans who used to actually make things and who lost their jobs to cheap labor markets on the other side of the world and have essentially been shrinking. Um, I think that it, it may be, you know, change the equation because I think it's dealt a, a death knell to globalization and it's precisely globalization that has made middle-class workers so expendable uh, when I say globalization, of course, that, that can mean a whole lot of things to different people. What I'm specifically talking about is its economic context. And that is basically separating where things are sold from where things are made. And what's allowed that separation to occur um, is the continual dismantling of tariffs and trade barriers that began right, you know, with the uh, general agreement on tariffs and trade and later the World Trade Organization, um, that right now we're seeing a whole reversal of that model. And up until that, the pandemic, 
you know, it was it was argued certainly by most economists that that not only was globalization beneficial, but maybe more importantly, inevitable. And, and to think back of a, a more local model of production was, you know, naively nostalgic, but but sort of out of touch with the realities of where the economy was going. Well, that's changed dramatically now because the, you know, the, the just-in-time model of globalization where something is made in China to be sold, you know, a week later or a month later in Los Angeles uh, doesn't work anymore. Just-in-time is just too late, as uh, a lot of American consumers are finding out, and that it's actually, you know, shareholders and consumers who are calling back production. So we're starting to see billions of dollars invested, for example, in Ohio in the semiconductor industry. I mean, there hasn't been investment in the North American semiconductor industry for years. That was like the, you know, the domain of places like South Korea and Taiwan. And if you just compare wage rates, it's, you know, it's no, no mystery why, but that's changing. And so, uh, so there may be a, a strong silver lining, in fact, has been a, sort of a stylized fact that all pandemics in the past, uh, going back to uh, the bubonic plague, have left in their wake raised wages. Now, in the past, they did so because they just decimated the labor force and all of a sudden labor was scarce because so many people perished and bid up the price of price of labor. In this particular case, uh, not people haven't died, but I think uh, the real driver here is that it's changed a model of economic organization that once again empowers North American workers in a way that they haven't seen for the last 30 or 40 years. And one of your points with this 1957, this late 50s pandemic, was the recovery uh, happened pretty quickly, right? That's because, right. Because we had, we had right. local, we, we didn't rely upon these massive supply chains of, of long distances. That's right. And, and the 1950s was a very different world for middle-class North American workers. I mean, it's arguably their heyday. Um, let me just give you an example of the importance of self-reliance. Uh, during, during the crisis, uh, you couldn't get a ventilator uh, because uh, the ventilators were all made in, in Asia and uh, all of a sudden supply was restricted. So uh, what happened was the Defense Production Act was uh, in force, the same act that uh, during World War II had seen uh, a Ford motor company build uh, fight jet, uh, jet, fight jetter, jet fighters. Well, what we, the same act was uh, enacted, and General Motors and Ford both started making ventilators in what was, up, up until that time, closed-down auto plants in Michigan. So uh, it certainly, the self-reliance certainly has resonated, and it's, it's funny that, um, you know, the, uh, when President Trump was in power, when he called for you know, self-reliance and uh, you know, made in America, return of jobs. 
his policies, including the tariffs that he had imposed on China, were ridiculed by the Democratic opposition in Congress. But over a year later, we find that the Biden administration hasn't uh, reduced one tariff that Trump uh, imposed on China and, in fact, themselves are now calling for self-reliance in a whole range of industries from uh, from pharmaceuticals to semiconductors. So, um, you know, certainly uh, the Trump administration is no longer there, but their trade policies of continue to be in force. You mentioned the factories, the auto factories uh, up in, in, in the Northeast. So it's not hard to retool yeah. those factories for different products? Well, I mean, as I gave you the example, during, uh, during the pandemic, two, uh, two closed ones were retooled to make ventilators. There is a lot of retooling going on right now, particularly with the production of electric vehicles in places like Michigan and uh, where I live, Ontario. Um, certainly that's happening. But, you know, even we're finding that, you know, a big a big break on auto production in North America is uh, the semiconductor shortages because so much of so much of the car now has computer components in it and our reliance entire reliance on asian producers to produce integrated circuits most of which were designed in north america has now rippled through to the car industry so uh, and i think that certainly prompted the huge uh, the huge investments that we've seen record investments in the us semiconductor industry so that in the future the auto industry will be supplied by american semiconductor producers you, you have a strong characterization of the global economy. Here's how you put it. The global we need to understand the global economy in this way, you say. A giant auction who's, where jobs go to the bidder, offering the lowest wage. How does that work? Well, that works. Let, let me tell you why that didn't work in the 1950s. Uh, if you tried, I mean, the wage gap between China and America was even greater then, was much greater than it is today. Not that it isn't great today, but it was so much greater before. Why didn't companies just say, okay, well, instead of producing widgets in Toledo, uh, we're going to produce widgets in Shanghai? Well, you could move your factory to Shanghai, but you wouldn't have a hope in hell of ever being able to sell anything that you produced in that Shanghai factory back into the United States, or for that matter, Canada, or for that matter, Western Europe or Australia, because all of those markets were protected by either outright quotas, import quotas, or huge tariffs. So that, you know, I mean, what what you would save on wage costs for making the move would be totally negated by the tariffs that you have to pay. Now, what's different today is those tariffs, for the most part, don't exist anymore. So you can move your factory from Toledo to Shanghai or even better, just have somebody in Shanghai produce what your factory in Toledo uh, used to do and buy it from them. And that's basically what Apple does 
uh, in, uh, you know, with its phone. So the difference is the dismantling of trade barriers. And once, once you dismantle trade barriers, you have like a global auction. In the old days, you know, when we used to get close to full employment, wages would start to go up and wages would start to go up because it was a domestic auction, like, you know, and, and there weren't that many unemployed people. But now it's a global auction. So that that's why, I mean, the, the good part of this is, and there has been a good part of it or wouldn't have been uh, accepted and tolerated so long, is that everything that gets moved to China from the United States comes back cheaper. And that would be true of an integrated circuit, uh, a car, a pair of leather sandals, textiles, anything that's going to be made by a dollar fifty, two dollars an hour labor is going to be cheaper than something that's made at like fifteen dollars an hour, which is the minimum wage in you know a number of U.S. states. So, you know, so th- th- what we've traded is we've traded jobs and incomes. For cheaper prices, uh, you know, and I guess one of the ironies is that you know North American workers would, you know, shop themselves out of their jobs by going to Walmart and you know, and the and the parking lots filled with people who used to work in plants in Toledo who made those things, but those things aren't made there anymore. They're made in you know, they're made in Bangladesh, they're made in India, they're made in China uh, or Vietnam at a fraction of the wage cost. When I lived in Atlanta, I I hated driving through these small towns, rural towns in Georgia. You go down Main Street and half of it's shuttered and the and the rest of it is you know some some old thrift shop or something. And then you drive out and and there at the highway exit there's Walmart and 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 the and the, and the yeah, well, so I the, mean, the downtown's died. Uh, uh, but Walmart Walmart was uh, hey hey we got better prices from Walmart. We were able to save a few dollars on our goods. That's great. Right. Well, you know, talking about the Southeast, like in the Carolinas, there used to be a very significant furniture industry that basically got wiped out because, uh, you know, you're not you're not paying people a dollar an hour to make furniture. So (laughs) instead of Walmart having furniture from Carolina producers, they have furnitures from, you know, furniture made in Vietnam and it's a fraction of the wage cost. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, one of the great things about the book, The Expendables, is the way you go back in, in history and bring up things that, that you know, I, I dimly remembered. I hadn't thought about Ross Perot in a long time. You go back to Ross Perot's 1992 campaign and his worries about NAFTA. Was he a was he a lone voice on NAFTA at, at that time? Because I, I remember him bringing well, NAFTA. What, what's what's that all about? I, I don't know. What, what, what did that catch? Yeah, his I message. Mean, his well, it caught later with a guy called Donald J. Trump. But at the time, 
Uh, we're talking, uh, I think it was 1991, when he said that great sucking sound was the sound of Mexico sucking jobs out of the U.S. And, and there was no greater example of that than in the auto industry. And, you know, places like Michigan were on the other end of that trade. He was absolutely right. He was 100% right. Um, but, it, you know, back in those days, uh, the pendulum was all swinging the other way. I mean, I'd say the pendulum has been swinging the other way for up until the Trump tariffs and the pandemics. I would say from from the 1970s to maybe 19 to 2015, the pendulum was all swinging this way. And as I said earlier, not only was was it seen as beneficial, but inevitable that you would be a Luddite, you know, someone against technological progress that suggests a throwback to anything like the 50s or 60s. And uh, But certainly uh, Ross Perot was, was prophetic. And, uh, you know, what was also sort of, I, I began the book talking about the, uh, uh, the protesters at the Seattle uh, World Trade Organization's first conference held in the United States. And, uh, you know, how they were viewed very negatively by the mainstream media, certainly by by papers like the New York Times, and just found, you know, just how ironic things were because very few of those protesters would have thought that the person who was actually going to implement their agenda was none other than uh, a New York billionaire real estate developer. <laughs> exactly. Now, you, you talk about the world Yeah, trade. with a time lag of, of 15, you know, of, of, of 20 years, but nevertheless. Well, it, it may, maybe um, it, it took that long for people to begin to realize that this, this globalization that is so championed by, by Bill Clinton and, and the Republican Party uh, it's working out for a small group real well. Um, anyway, that's you- right, and and it's it's. It, I'm glad that you pointed out Bill Clinton because uh, he doesn't get uh, nearly enough credit or blame, depending on how you see this, uh, from launching the globalist agenda, uh, and and certainly the traditional wing of the Republican car, uh, Party would have shared that that vision. Uh, you know, Trump was as much an outsider to the Republican Party as Bernie Sanders was uh, in his challenge in 2016. The difference is that the party machinery and the Democrats was able to maintain the status quo and 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 make sure that Hillary Clinton got the nomination where the Republican establishment party wasn't. But I think Trump really changed that party. You know, if you go back to to, you know, three, 40 years ago, the the Democratic Party was the party of of, of certainly blue uh, blue collar workers and the working class uh, that certainly changed under Bill Clinton. And ironically, under Donald Trump, uh, uh, certainly that wing of the Republican Party probably enjoys the same support that the Democrats enjoyed uh, from workers back in the 60s. Yeah. You, you talk about the World Trade Organization, and one thing you point out about this organization that sort of likes to present itself as, 
kind of a nonpartisan referee or, or, or laying out international rules is that they do not apply consistent rules to every nation. What is that about? Well, it's just that there are different rules for different nations. So that, for example, China, which is still in their eyes considered a most uh, a developing country, gets to protect its industry with tariffs that are five to eight to ten times what the United States gets to do. So if you wanted to to build a car in the United States and export it to China you would face a 20% tariff. But if China wanted to build a car and export it to the United States, they would only face a 3% tariff. And both that 3% and and 20% tariff, they're they're both WTO mandated tariffs, but they're they're different rules for different people. And I think that that Trump and, and, you know, Bernie Sanders made this made the same type of arguments on the Democratic side that the rules for the WTO were designed to basically screw the American worker. Now, you know, American companies, on the other hand, benefited from that because they could farm out production to low wage markets and still be able to sell those products back in their home market. So, you know, that's why that's why business organizations and economists argue globalization was great. But certainly uh, the WTO was was blatantly uh, biased in the way that it treated uh, trade rules for countries like China and India and trade rules for countries like the United States and Canada. You know, we could say shareholders would win on on that as well. When companies win, shareholders would win. But one thing you noted that I, I wasn't aware of is that the number of households in the United States that own stocks has gone significantly down in recent years. And that's pretty amazing considering that this has been the greatest rally in the history of the American stock market. If we look at, for example, the S&P 500. So you would think, well, you know, in a bear market, for sure, people would own less stock. But in the greatest bull market on record and the longest lasting one, why didn't more and more American households have stock? Well, you know, because they don't because most American households, most middle class American households haven't seen a real income gain in 50 years. And if you want to know why the wealth gap in America and in other countries like Western Europe and Canada as well have increased so much, it's precisely because of the ownership of the stock market. Because, you know, uh, the top 10% own 80% of all publicly listed listed, uh, stocks. So when stocks go up to the extent that they have over the last 15 years, the wealth generation that it creates is enormous, particularly for those who own text for the Jeff Bezos uh, yeah. uh, of the world. But it doesn't put any food on the table for your average American household because less and less of them own any stock. Is this what you mean by the phenomenon of, quote, non-inclusive growth? That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, it's, you know, I mean, if we look at GDP growth, which is sort of the most common barometer of 
economic progress. You know, GDP growth has done just fine. But if you look at what's happened to the real value of your average American household, it's been stuck for the last 30 to 40 years. So yes, the economy is growing, but we're not seeing the benefits, the distribution of those economic gains. We're seeing that large swaths of the American population have been excluded. And I think really that that's precisely the conditions that have led to the rise of, of populism and certainly the political success of yeah. President Trump. Were Trump's steel tariffs, which of course we heard great alarm bells about that in press, were Trump's steel tariffs a success, would you say? Yes, absolutely. They were absolutely a success. And in fact, if you were to have read any of the op-eds in the Washington Post or the New York Times about tariffs, it would have been how they're all so misguided that we're not going to see any job creation. We're just going to see higher prices. Well, we did see job creation. All of a sudden, we saw investment in industries like steel and aluminum that hadn't seen investment for over a couple of decades because you couldn't just sell cheap imported steel into the United States anymore. So, you know, I mean, it's not a coincidence that all of a sudden manufacturing employment started coming back. And that was precisely the argument that Trump made. And and again, I I point out that that Bernie Sanders was making the same argument on the Democrat side, although he wasn't in a position to actually enact those tariffs as Trump later was. Uh, let, let me <laughs> mention something very specific. Uh, it comes late in the book. You mentioned uh, something called the Polish plumber. What is that figure? How, how does plumber. he fit in your story? Yeah. Well, you know, globalization just wasn't about the free movement of labor, of goods, but also of labor. And business organizations have always been huge proponents of large waves of immigration because what they typically do is they lower the price of, of wages because they're typically coming from jurisdictions that have much lower income than the United States. Well, the same thing basically happened in the UK uh, when Poland joined the EU, which gave everyone the right to work in every EU country. You had over a million Poles working in, uh, in the UK, and they were particularly noticeable uh, in the plumbing industry. And of course, uh, their attraction was that they'd work for a lower wage than your domestic plumber. And that goes a long way in explaining why Boris Johnson won the biggest conservative landslide victory since Margaret Thatcher. And he did so by capturing a number of seats in Northern England that was industrial and had always voted labor in, uh, in the past. It's not that dissimilar a story from all of a sudden auto workers and steel workers that, you know, has historically been Democrat voting for Trump. You mentioned earlier that there there may be a silver lining to the pandemic, that the pandemic has exposed the vulnerabilities of of Americans to to the to the global regime. Do we ha how many of our political leaders are figuring out how to reduce our vulnerabilities. How many of them are, are willing to speak in favor of, of tariffs? And, and to, or, or has Trump sort of, he's the, he's the only one and, and other people want to stay away from that. What do you see? 
Well, as I said earlier, um, for all that that he was criticized by Congress at the time, the Biden administration, which is in power for well over a year, hasn't reduced a single tariff against China. So I guess they're okay now. Uh, similarly, he's even increased the bar by by increasing the content for buy for public procurement, and that's going to be pretty big given the infrastructure bill that they've just passed. Uh, and he now is saying that for strategic reasons, the U.S. has to be self-sufficient in the growing list of industries. So, you know, I think that the Trump legacy is being continued by the Biden administration. They just don't want to acknowledge it anymore. But but equally important, if not more important, is the fact that corporations are realizing that the just-in-time inventory of global organization doesn't work. And you can just look at the supply chain problems from everything from, uh, you know, from trying to buy a bike to trying to buy uh, a car that has occurred because of that. And I think that shareholders are telling corporations to go back to a local sourcing model. And I think at the end of the day, that's going to be a more powerful uh, force on behalf of the expendables than whatever the trade policies of whatever administration is in place right now. Do you see a lot of politicians running on squarely that issue uh, coming up to the midterms in the U.S.? Oh, well, you know, I think I, I think the model, the anti-globalization model. Um, be it uh, be it on the economic side or or the immigration side or for that matter the foreign policy side will be very much in play in the midterms and you know I think that uh, you know it will set the stage for uh, a very interesting presidential election two years after that because certainly. It doesn't look like Donald Trump and sort of the forces that he de- he represented was some fleeting moment. It looks like uh, they're here to stay. <laughs> Mr. Rubin, it is going to be an interesting couple of years, I, I think, for, for better or worse. Uh, actually, to get to a, a, political, a, a political question you asked near the end, is liberal democracy obsolete? How do you answer that question? Well, you know, I pointed out that our support of liberal democracy is based on economic prosperity, and certainly recent generations, the millennials and on, have not enjoyed the prosperity of baby boomers, and and their commitment to liberal democracy, I think, was very much conditioned by the economic prosperity that they enjoyed in the 50s, 60s, uh, in the early decades of the, the 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 post-war era. So, you know, when people get left behind, they start searching for different solutions, whether those solutions can come from the left or, or from the right. And, and I think that explains the, you know, the growing rise and uh, popularity of populism, that it, it, it stems out of economic conditions where people have been left behind and certainly, I think that it cannot be taken for granted that our support for liberal democracy is uh, unconditional, because yeah. uh, I don't think it is. The book is The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. Uh, Jeff Rubin, thank you for joining us.
My pleasure. It was a great talking to you. Take care. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.